0: All right. Welcome to Beyond the Fundamentals. I believe that we are live today. We have Bob Leitzel with us. Now, Bob and I have been chatting a little bit about Romans 9, and Bob has a a take on Romans 9 that is a fresh perspective. And what I'd like to do is talk about that today. So thanks so much for coming aboard, Bob. You want to take a couple seconds and tell us about yourself and uh, what is your interest in Romans 9? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. Yeah.
1: pleasure to be with you. Been a big fan of the channel for a long time and uh, really appreciate your study. And a lot of points you've made over the years have, uh, you know, been really insightful. So it's a real pleasure to come on the channel with you. That's for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, so I'm married, I have four kids, uh, I live in the Dallas area. Um, my kids were all born in California. We moved to Dallas a few years ago. I yeah. was, uh, raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school and we studied the Bible and had, you know, Catholic class or religious class. And I thought I saw a bunch of contradictions. So I, I kind of walked away from the faith when I was a real young man. Mm-hmm. And when we started having kids, my wife, uh, you know, said she, she wasn't raised with anything, any religion. So she wanted our kids to have something so they wouldn't be, uh, you know, have no morals at all. So we we weren't going to go to a bunch of the other religions. I said, okay, we can try Christian, but that's about all I could stomach because at the time I thought I was an atheist. Well, <laughs> short short answer is uh, there was a church in Simi Valley uh, pastored by Francis Chan. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he really mm-hmm. knocked me on my butt one day when I was just attending with my wife. And he kind of eliminated a lot of the contradictions I saw in scripture. And I realized I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. So I had to give over, you know, lordship of my life to him instead of keeping it on myself. Oh, wow. The only f- couple of things I had left, uh, you know, a couple of things I wanted to, to tie up in my in my own knowledge for myself, you know, once once he killed me on all the contradictions I thought were in scripture, the mm-hmm. only one that really hung around was the predestination thing. And I've been studying mm-hmm. it for, um, you know, 20 plus years now. Um, and wow. first I was a Calvinist and then I was an Arminian and then I was a Calvinist again and then I was an Arminian again. And... I, and when I realized that neither side could really refute the other side's position mm-hmm. using the scriptures the other side used, right. I decided to try to apply the, you know, the fundamental. If, if you have two sides and you can't figure out whichever one is correct, mm-hmm. check all your presuppositions, you know, go back to the, the fundamentals. Yes,
0: that's, a, yeah. Yeah, that's excellent, by the way, for sense making yeah. for anybody out there.
1: I found that both Calvinism and Arminianism believed that the Bible taught that God chose some people for eternal life mm-hmm. and chose or left everyone else for eternal death. <laughs> yep. They just differed on how they believed it came to pass, and mm-hmm. that didn't really set well with my, you know, understanding of the Gospels and Acts and um, Old Testament, and all of the all of the letters in the New Testament. So I studied and studied and studied, and we were in the middle of uh, one of the first Bible studies I did as a Christian. We were in Galatians, and yep. you, you go through Galatians, and you get so much of Paul's you know message in Galatians, and then if you walk over to Romans, you know I, what I saw in Romans nine mm-hmm. just didn't line up with the way you hear Romans nine taught all the time because I had just come out of Galatians, and it was a yeah, big yeah. eye opener to me, and I couldn't figure out why no one else saw it. You know, because Romans <laughs> nine is always, always yeah, it's always taught about it's it's either salvation of the individual or salvation yeah. of of uh, the nations. You know which one is it, and that's not what I saw at all.
0: Sorry about that. I got allergies acting up today. Yeah, so I, that's what not
1: what I saw at all. I just saw that something totally different coming out of Galatians.
0: So you saw something totally different than what than what was being taught, or what you well, thought was Romans nine was saying, or
1: no, just when you when you read through Romans 9, Romans 9, it's you said something in a in a Romans 9 video, I think three years ago now that was really smart. <laughs> yeah. No, you did. You said that there's the meaning and then there's the application. Like we look at Romans 9 and we try to figure out what the meaning is, but the meaning is from the author and his culture and his audience. That's what the right. meaning of the text yep. is. Yep. And then we can we can figure out how that applies to our life. Yes. But if, we, if we're not living, if we're not the same people as the audience, if we're not living in the same time, if that doesn't apply to us, then the application might be a little bit different. We have to figure out what the application yes. really is in our life. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, when, when you read Romans 9, it's, to me, it's very clearly a recounting of Paul's um, struggles and his arguments with the non-believing Jews. You know, we know from Acts and um, some of his other letters too, that Paul, you know, every time he got to a new town would go to the temple courts and he would reason with his, his fellow believers, his fellow Jews. And of course, yeah. all the other apostles all, were mostly going to the Jews to begin with anyways. So we know that, that the arguments were always started or very largely often with the Jews in the beginning. And so they had lots of practice arguing, you know, mm-hmm. is Jesus the really Messiah, really the Messiah? What does that mean for our faith? And, you know, Paul, everybody was so angry at him. They stoned him. They tried to kill him. You know, he always into <laughs> a lot of fights. But yeah. he, he got into fights because he would win, because he knew he was right and, and he would win. Mm-hmm. And, and this section of Romans 9 seems to really clearly be a recounting of his arguments and how, how he would win those arguments. More so to me than um, just trying to figure out, coming out of Romans 8, after he gives the, the golden chain of redemption, often he you know, uh, tells you all the blessings that are for us, those who are in Christ, you know, a lot of people teach that Romans nine. Paul thinks. Well, people would assume the next question is, well, if, if you're, what you're saying is true, then how come it didn't work for, for uh, the Jews? How come it didn't work for his his people? Like, is God's has God's word failed? And I don't really think that's what Paul's walking into at all.
0: So, so um, you know, as we were talking before this, you sent over some key points that I think are very interesting, and as we look into this, I want to let anybody who's watching know that. Um, you you described Galatians 3 and 4. And I'm going I'm to list these four things here as best I can. You described Galatians 3 and 4 as kind of a Rosetta stone that unlocks Romans 9. So that'd be interesting to look at that. The next thing you have is a universal inclusion statements, like in Romans 10 and 11, that show the main points and the foundation of Paul's teaching that through which Romans nine should be also viewed. And you have some other passages there. You have some common Jewish theological errors, which could have been rampant at the time, which Paul was also addressing. And then one of the things that's most interesting to me is what the fourth one you have, the it's like a thought exercise that you have to do the common objections to Paul's message. So you, you see Paul as presented, uh, presenting information in response to certain objections which would be coming from Jews and what what you did not only in the document you sent but then in longer the uh the manuscript that you sent over it looks like you enumerate some of those what those are like what what would have been some of these arguments that these people would have been having that Paul is responding to and you know that happens a lot uh if <laughs> one of the ways of thinking is to imagine what somebody else would say. Like, what would your dad say about this? Or what would your mom say about this? And and without them actually there, you can kind of infer what they might be saying or what they might be asking in a particular situation. So it looks like you went through this mental exercise and you have inferred specific um, objections that Paul is addressing, maybe like an FAQ kind of thing, you know? that have been coming Paul's way from the Jews that he's addressing. And you enumerate those, you list those out in in the manuscript that you sent, which I think is great because I've done videos before where like, I think, yeah, the Jews are objecting to him, but I've never actually sat and tried to write out specifically what their arguments would be that he is addressing. I think this is very fascinating. So I'm
1: glad you brought it up. It goes to the very heart of the meaning question, right? What does Romans 9 mean? And, you know, a lot of when I when I saw Romans 9, I went back and I looked to see who's written about this, you know, and -hmm. over the last 1500 years, all the books that I'm reading by Mm -hmm. Augustine and Calvin and Luther and MacArthur and Piper and uh, Dave Hunt, just a whole bunch of people, all the books that you can find out there, the vast majority of them are written by Gentile Christians, Right, and that's and that's who we are, and the and the vast majority of people I talk to, I live in you know Dallas, I live in the United States. Most people I talk to have never met a Jewish person, let alone have any concept of what their theology is and Mm. what those errors and those difficulties of 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 their thinking and their theology really is.
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: actually grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And living in California, uh, but in Southern California, there's lots of Jews in, in the neighborhoods around where I lived. So I, I was exposed enough to, to, to Jews that I got a, a decent amount of feeling for you know how they thought. And it, when we read the New Testament as Gentile Christians, we skip over it a ton. But yep. if you go to you know Ephesians two and Ephesians three, Paul calls it this great mystery that has now been revealed that God is including the Gentiles along with the Jews into, the, into his family. And we just kind of read right over that because, yeah, of course, yeah, everybody's included, Gentiles included, great, move on, right? But it, it, in Paul's day, this was no end of, of surprise. I mean, this was a, a, a fantastical new teaching that Paul had. And before Christ walked the earth, Nobody saw this coming. Yahweh was of the Jews. He was the God of the Jews and Mm -hmm. and almost nobody else on the planet, right? And and the Gentiles were just completely out of the picture. So it's so stunning that that this happened. Paul called it the great mystery. And Mm -hmm. every time Paul would preach on this, the Jews would get super angry that he was bringing up. The Gentiles weren't allowed to just come into the family just as they are. They didn't have to become Jews first. The way the Jews would object to this is very, very important to Paul's message and how he would preach to them. And, and all of these objections have to be top of mind when we look yeah. at Romans 9. And one of the most common ones just gets completely missed. Like, for example, the one that everybody picks up on is that, um, that God's word has not failed. that and Because Paul actually writes it out in, in Romans 9 for us. And you'll hear preachers all the time pick up on that. Well, you know, here's where a Jew would say, Oh, but God's word has failed. Or some people think that a Christian reader, because
0: things are transitioning over to the Gentiles that God's word has failed because they misperceived that everything was promised just to them exclusively. Yep. But bigger than that objection, really,
1: Paul would have faced were why is God letting the Gentiles into the family at
0: all? And why is he doing it now? Like, why is he just... So far, and a lot of people don't realize this in the book of Acts, but so far, like, even after they're dispersed around and go to all the different cities after Stephen is stoned, they're all preaching to Jews only, which means they're preaching to Jews, like those who are ethnically, biologically Hebrew Jews. And also they're, they're speaking to Jewish proselytes, which would be Gentiles who have converted to Judaism Including um, being circumcised and keeping the law of Moses and whatever proselyte requirements there were, which was a which is kind of a drawn-out process. Um not converting to Christianity can, you know, we typically we say it can happen pretty quickly, but a Jew would can proselytize to Judaism, a Gentile will proselytize to Judaism over a course of months and sometimes years, depending on the various sect. So uh yeah, they're only they're still very uh, Jewishly oriented, even in the beginning of the book of Acts. And they like the idea that somebody who is not circumcised and who is not keeping the law of Moses can just get saved without having to do any of that is a big shocker. And a lot of them don't like it.
1: Yep. And the common objections would be, you know, why is he letting them in at all like this without having to become Jewish first? And why is he doing it? Why is he telling us about this? so many centuries, you know, almost thousands of years after the forefathers. Like, this doesn't sound right, Paul. It sounds like you're just making this up. Yeah. And if you if you look at Romans 9, a key one, for example, at the end of verse 12, you know, uh, chap- verses 11 and 12 and 13, if you include it, but really 11 and 12, 9, 9 11 and 9, 12, are a complex sentence that, you know, w- I w- has a main sentence and it has a parenthetical phrase in the middle and the point of the main sentence of verses 10 11 and 12 i'm sorry is that it, the elder will serve the younger and yep. nobody ever teaches on that i heard uh, when you were talking with joel carson the other day he, he brought up that you know the what if statements down in the 20s you know what yeah. if god what if god and no one ever focuses on the what if and it, that was fascinating it was great he said that yeah. but here in verse 12 Paul's point is that the elder will serve the younger, Uh and it's not because Paul's saying, oh, God chose the younger over the elder. Ha, it's God's choice. Like we said, God chooses some and doesn't choose others. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that the elder will serve the younger, and you have to ask, why would Paul say this? Because to the Jews' mind, they're the older son now. They are the ones who've been Yahweh's children, Yahweh's sons for so long that you're just now letting the Jews in Paul's kind of like
0: in the parable of the prodigal son the Jews would be the older brother exactly right like, hey yeah. we've been we've been around here the whole time where's the fatted calf for us and the wedding banquet
1: same thing that, that
0: the Jews were the first ones that
1: were invited and then when they rejected him he sent the invitation out to all the Gentiles yeah.
0: Yep. yep yep
1: Yeah. so in this case the the objection about you know people just miss it because they don't realize the jews one of the jews main objections is why are you letting the gentiles in now at this late date and that's got to be top of mind and if we have that objection in mind Mm -hmm. or these objections in mind we can see so much more in romans 9 all the roles get reversed in romans 9 it's fascinating So,
0: so yeah we have somebody in the comment pointing out that uh there are various different kinds of Judaism going on at the time. Uh, This is parodied by Monty Python's The Life of Brian in, in a humorous form, but there are very, just like there's lots of different denominations. And so what Paul is addressing here, we're not projecting his, these objections onto all the Jews of the era, but we're, we're understanding the objections that he keeps running into. And, you know, You know, as a YouTube content creator in, in the realm of Christianity, I run into a lot of objections in comments and emails, and it's easy, it's easy for me to project that widely across the whole audience when maybe it's only coming from five people, but it feels like a lot because those five people are loud or frequent, (laughs) you know? So we're looking at what Paul is dealing with as he's going around preaching and what, what kind of stuff he's encountering on a regular basis
1: exactly right and he he was really good at looking into the scripture and finding mis- the Messiah finding Christ in the Old Testament yep. I know that there is a, a place I believe it's in Galatians looking for it furiously where he he explains that the promise to Abraham was to Abraham and his seed meaning yep. the Messiah right
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah it's uh, Galatians 3 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. This is, this is one of the points that Paul would make to the non-believing Jews when he's, he's pointing out that, that Christ was pointed to in you know, the Old Testament. And it, was, it, it floored them. It fascinated them or angered them probably that he was right because they didn't want to hear the message. This section in Galatians is key, though. The the, Chapter 3 gives the foundation for Paul's point. And then chapter 4, the end part of chapter 4 from verses 21 on, really uh, is the Rosetta Stone that kind of gives us the clue of how we should read Romans 9.
0: Yeah, so you want to, this Rosetta Stone thing is very interesting to me. So you want to start with chapter 3. You have verses 3 through 10, chapter 3, verses Mm 3 through 10 mentioned here. Now,
1: 3 through 10, just let, yeah, uh, chapter 3, verses 3 through 10, just lay a little bit of the groundwork. He says, are you so foolish after beginning with the spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And then this is his point. Consider Abraham he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, yep. all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. So that's so Paul's point here. He's, he's transitioning away from the traditional jewish teaching that you know god gave them the law and and they're the you know their their ancestors their forefathers so they're his yeah. children and and because of the promise that came you know to, to isaac and to jacob but paul saying no the, the gentiles who are having faith are abraham's children that would be a huge insult you know to his non-believing jewish audience really yeah so that's his underlying point and then if we could go to galatians 4 Starting in verse
0: twenty-one, um, yeah, I just want to—I want to add a comment on there. Um, I'm also commenting in the comment section, but I just want to add a comment on there that um, there is this tension, it seems, between Jews of that day, or some at least, and the original promise to Abraham was that in thee shall all nations be blessed. That was the original, you know, promise. That was part of the original promise. Genesis 12, 15, 18. And, and somewhere along the line, it gets to the point where Jonah doesn't like this idea. He doesn't want to go preach to Nineveh. You know, He doesn't want to take things outside and bring other people in. Yep. And so people coming in from the outside tend to be the exception. You have this frozen chosen mentality, kind of like the modern day Calvinists. And what should be doing there, they were supposed to be a conduit of blessing to all people. And the idea that they kind of lock it down and put very strict barriers, you know, thresholds of entry around becoming one of God's people is, is a problem that maybe if they hadn't have been doing this, they would not have been, uh, you know, supplanted temporarily by the church. Outside of,
1: you know, outside of, what we're studying as far as predestination in Romans nine and and the, and the Jews rejection of the Messiah and and Paul's message, maybe even a a deeper mystery, right. For, for, for the, for the Jewish world has always been, why did God choose the Jews? Right. Why did God choose us? Of course, they also believe God didn't choose everybody else. And when Paul goes back to the stories, he shows that Noah Ishmael actually was quite blessed by God. And God protected Hagar and protected Ishmael. Esau was quite blessed by God. He was totally, you know, had had land and power and riches, and he even reconciled with Jacob. So don't, don't think that if God chooses Jacob or chooses Isaac, he doesn't also choose the others. But th- that's what they believed. And this this idea of this yeah, chosenness. And, and you
0: had to ask the question, chosen for what exactly? Right.
1: Well, to them, the mistake that they made, which is a really common mistake, I think it crops up 400 years after Jesus dies when Augustine gets on the scene. But that mistake is that, you know, the people that God chooses are really, really special and everyone else is not. And and like you said, the mistake is made that that choosing is for salvation. Where where Paul points back to Abraham in in Genesis 12, he says, no, the point of of the Jews being chosen was so that God could reveal himself on the earth and, and show all the nations that by blessing the Jews, that he's blessing everybody, that he's the blessing. It's not that we're so fantastic and holy that God had to choose us to be his children. No, like the story of David and Goliath, God's the hero. David's not the hero, right?
0: And um, Romans 3, I believe, for unto them were committed the oracles of God. And there's, there's so many other things going on that really make me think, like... You know, you have Melchizedek pops up in Genesis fourteen, and then he pops up in Psalm one hundred and ten. pops up in Hebrews. He's very sparsely mentioned throughout Scripture, but he's he's uh, conspicuously sparse. You know, right? <laughs> uh, where did all those followers of Where did all those followers go in the meantime? And so, when Jesus makes these statements, like I have other sheep which are not of this fold, it makes you it makes you wonder else. Wonder what else God may have going on in the background that isn't necessarily captured in the Bible. Because while the Bible is true, it makes no claim on being exhaustive.
1: Right. Yeah. No, it's supposed to point the way, uh, but but it's not exhaustive,
0: right? So there's other things going on. Um and okay. the, yeah. All right. So go ahead. Galatians 4, the Rosetta Stone. All right. Let me uh let me share a- the screen occasions again there we go galatians 4 and we're going to 21 yep 21 tell me oh should i read yours by the way i keep reading mine oh you can read whatever you want tell we me no me. rules here
1: <laughs> tell me you i guess i use the niv it's fine I, i'm okay with any translation
0: no tell person.
1: me you who want to be under the law are you not aware of what the law says for it is written that abraham had two sons one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. So this is Genesis. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of of a promise. And then he says the golden line, these things may be taken figuratively for the women represent two covenants. And this is now into Exodus. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. So he just took the ancient, ancient Jewish identity story of, oh, I just lost it. Is it Jacob and Esau? No, this is Isaac and Ishmael. And reversed the roles he just took the ancient, like the identity story of, of their forefathers, the, the Jewish forefathers, where they get their whole identity of we're God's chosen people. And he reversed it and said, no, the Jews are the ones who are not chosen in this sense because they're slaves under the law. They, they, they're bound to earthly Jerusalem. They're bound to Hagar. That's Ishmael, where the Gentiles who are believing and are taking on the faith are represented by uh, Sarah and that's the Jerusalem of
0: the holy city above. That's the yeah, spiritual. So being Jerusalem. under the law is like, is like, uh, be, it was like being like Ishmael. Yep. He goes yep. on
1: at 28. He says, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. He's talking to Gentile Christians here. He's telling them that you brothers are like Isaac, the children of the promise. And at the time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. And that means that the Jews who are persecuting, these these Gentile Christians who are coming into the faith, Paul saw that exact representation in the Isaac Ishmael story, but completely in reverse, and he's pointing it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, this allegory just shows exactly what's going on. God is setting aside those who are under the law in favor of those who are not under the law. And he's referring to being under the law as under bondage. Not free. Yep,
1: and this is this teaching. This and and Jacob and Esau and Moses and Pharaoh. These teachings are, you know, when we have Sunday school. This is this would be the Saturday school, right, for uh, a Jewish <laughs> upbringing, right? <laughs> this is like the stuff you're taught from it from your childhood age, and, and these are like the hero stories, right? Like Noah's the hero, right? So these are the hero stories, and if Paul's reversing it. He, he's, he knows how much that's going to cause you know, tension with his non-believing Jewish audience. And that's, this, is, this is so clear. He, he states it so clearly that he's reversing the roles, that these are taken figuratively, and he yeah. lays it all out, that now if we go look at Romans 9, we're going to see something very different than what is normally taught.
0: Okay. So in Galatians 3, what I'm trying to do is hold these both in my head. Galatians 4, we have a role reversal. And then in Galatians three, how do we sum that up in one little? So
1: Galatians three, that section three through ten, is really just laying the groundwork for what he's going to say in Galatians four, anyways.
0: Galatians three, it's supposed the blessing is supposed to be to everybody, all kindred nations, tongue, tribes. And in Galatians 4, we have the role reversal that those under the law, those who remain under the law are the ones in bondage.
1: Right. And besides okay. the the promise going to everybody, which will come up again in Romans 9, Galatians 3 also has the, the introduction of the idea that the, the children who believe are the children of Abraham, not the children of, of the ancestry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I think I'm tracking that now. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. I like that.
1: Well. He gives us that you know, incredibly clear allegory and he lays out all the roles and he, and he totally lines it up so there can't be any, you can't miss it in, in Galatians. In Romans 9, he does the same thing, but he, mm-hmm. he doesn't lay out any of the groundwork. He just expects you to be tracking right along.
0: Okay. That makes sense too. Okay. So we want to go to Romans 9 now? I think we're ready for it. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screen share Kate again. All right. Yep. So the very first verse, right?
1: I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy ghost. When pastors teach on this, they talk about, Oh, it's great. Paul really means this. And that's true. But the reason why Paul says this is because he's been going from, from, you know, temple to temple or synagogue to synagogue, or from place to place arguing with, non-believing Jews. And he yeah. gets accused so stridently of being a liar. He also gets accused of being, uh, of hating his own Jewish uh, identity. He gets mm-hmm. accused of being a Gentile lover. Mm-hmm. He lives in a world like we don't understand, right? Maybe 250 years ago in, in the world of, of racial slavery, right? Where mm-hmm. not only was there a racial, prejudice and and racial identities, but it was believed that it was supported by God himself. Like God had chosen a certain race over other races. That's how people supported, you know, sometimes supported the idea of, of slavery. Paul lives in that world. Paul lives in a world where the idea of, of the Jews being God's holy people is fully supported by the, the Torah, by the old Testament. And to, it was fully, it was a holy mandate that the Gentiles were just left out of that. So when mm-hmm. Paul comes along and he gives this whole message, you know that, that the Jews are now included into the family, it was vicious the attacks that he would take. And and, and so he, they because they accused him of lying so bad when he starts thinking about his his arguments with the Jews, the first thing that comes to mind is I, I got to tell you, this is the I'm telling the truth. This is a deep deep truth that I'm I'm holding to and i understand you're going to call me a liar but this is this is a truth yeah and number 2 uh, that i have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart because he gets accused of hating his own jewish ancestry and then he says in verse 3 for i could wish that myself were accursed from christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh and A lot of people skip right over this. And this is the first one. If you can imagine Paul arguing with non-believing Jews in the temple courts, you can imagine at some point, somebody looked at Paul as a total Jewish heretic, you know, preaching this new radical belief system. They probably accused him of trying to be, or maybe he thought of himself as being that Moses- standing in Egypt, standing up to all the Egyptians and Pharaoh and all of his, you know, council and government and all of his armies being that one, that one voice in the, in the, in the the wilderness calling out in front of Pharaoh saying, no, no, I'm fighting for God. I'm fighting for my people. And and he, and he quotes Moses or he hearkens back to Moses saying, I wish I could be, I could wish that I could be cut, cut off from Christ for my brothers, the the Jews, and and the, the Jews that would hear him say that and would know where that comes from in the Old Testament would be furious, because at this point Moses had had received uh, Moses had had gone up on the mountain, he came back down and saw that the, the Jews had just abandoned God, had created the golden calf, were right, right. Do, doing all their own religions, had made idols for themselves. And, and God told him, you know, I'm going to wipe all these people out, take swords and go through the camp, killing left and right men, right, women, right. and children. And it was slaughter. And said a thousand people were, were killed that day. And the slaughter, the, 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 you know, God's punishment was so severe that, that Moses, you know, went r- run, running back up on the mountain and asked God, Hey, can we please stop? I mean, you've made your point. Can I, can I, can you take me out of, out of commission? Can you take me out of, out of leadership? Can you take my life instead and stop, you know, Killing your your children, that's what the Jews. That's what Paul is saying. He is here. He's representing God's people. In this case, the Gentiles and the yeah. Jews are the ones who made the golden calves and, and abandoned God. It was. It's a strong rebuke.
0: So, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So, what is it that ties us to the to the era of the golden calf specifically right here? Because I, I think you mentioned that in your other document as well that I looked yeah. over.
1: Yeah, and I'm not uh, phenomenal. I think it's Exodus thirty two thirty two.
0: Yep, that's the one with the dash in it.
1: And the and the whole passage of Exodus thirty two is really neat to look at. Really.
0: So he says, "Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not." Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Yeah. So when he says in chapter 9, verse 3 of Romans, I wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, for my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's, he's making an allusion to the same way Moses did here, is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, back up to Exodus 32, 19. Back up to verse
0: 19. Yeah, which makes and- sense.
1: It says, and it came to pass as soon as the, as soon as he came nigh, as soon as Moses came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and he broke them, and he broke them beneath the mount, and he took the calf which they had made, and burnt it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did these people unto, unto thee? that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief, for they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And I said unto them, whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they give it me that I cast it into the fire. And there came out this calf. And when Moses <laughs> saw magically magically, right? Just, just <laughs> magically, Aaron didn't have anything to do with it. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, I'm going to skip down to 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, "Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor and the children of levi did according to the word of moses and there fell about there fell uh, uh, and there fell of the people that that day about 3000 men for yeah. moses had said consecrate yourselves today to the lord even every man upon his son and upon his brother that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day and it came to pass on the morrow that moses said unto the people you have sinned a great sin and now i will go up unto the lord peradventure i shall make an atonement for your sins and then now moses goes back up to the mountain and you know, in verse 32 says, you know, blot, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. So he's asking God, take me out because this sin was too great against you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this is the same. This, so Paul is calling back on that and he's basically kind of voicing the same sentiment as Moses was there. I wish that acc- I could be a curse instead of them. So he's kind of putting himself in the place of Moses there.
1: Paul's accused. And, and, and by doing so, who's the other part of that, um, of that scenario? Who's the other part of the story, right? All, all the God's people and how were they behaving? So in Paul's day, by by him saying, I could wish myself a curse for my, for, from Christ for my brethren, it, now he's saying that the Jews who were not believing in his message, the ones who were there when when Christ was was crucified, th- these Jews were the ones acting like the Jew, the
0: Jews, the Israelites in in Moses's that day, made the golden calf and totally you, abandoned God. L- like if if Mount Sinai was happening right now, you guys would be the one making the golden calf.
1: And God's very deserved <laughs> punishment for them was slay death by sword by the thousands. Yeah. So not only not only was Paul standing in front of non-believing Jews saying, Oh, this Jesus guy you crucified, he was really the Messiah, and all these Gentiles, these dirty Gentiles are getting led into the family, and you're not, not only is he saying that, he's saying, And you guys all deserve to be, you know, killed by the sword. It's pretty strong.
0: Yeah, yeah, that is pretty. So when you when you lay it out like that, I don't know if I've ever thought about it in those terms, but it makes a whole lot of sense that since he's making this allusion to what Moses said, he's basically calling them a bunch of golden calf worshipers. Um, Well, it's
1: just, it's just the first one. And there's a bunch more. So he goes on to say,
0: I also want to point out while we're here, while we're talking about this, and a lot of people may not catch this, but I have some personal experience with this. And what I'm about to say is like when I was with the independent Baptists, those people say what you will about them. But they are familiar with the content of the Bible. They're so familiar with the content of the Bible that you you can quote something very subtly and people will get it. They will get it. And so the Jewish people would be like this. So Paul could make some very subtle references to a certain passage and everybody would know what they're talking about. And oftentimes when Jesus was talking, he would call up a psalm or something from Isaiah. And as soon as you start the passage, everyone knows what it's about. Everyone knows the passage. And so you can often just like, like, I think somebody gave an, an explanation for when Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Everyone around there who's a Jew would understand all of Psalm 22 based on the start of it like that. And would not need to have the whole thing laid out. Yep.
1: Just When little, you hear little
0: phrases here and there, I call them
1: touchstones. When yes. you hear, yeah, when you hear, good, yeah. When you hear Paul say something, and it's a line that maybe doesn't mean much to you, but it's very carefully worded. That's a great clue that this is a touchstone for Paul. That's going to mean something much deeper to people who are in the know and know and you know know his message. The next one it comes up in verse nine. Wait till you see it, Kevin. This is exactly like what you were just talking about. But we got to get there.
0: Okay. This is exciting. Let me yeah. um, bring the screen back up. It's exactly like what you said.
1: To get there, though, we'll go through his, um, his quote in four, where he says, you know, the, the, my brother and according to flesh who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises who are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh. Christ came, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. And here he's, he's showing that I, I do love being a Jew. I'm, I don't hate my ancestors. Yeah, I don't hate yeah. my upbringing. Those of you who want to accuse me of being a Jew hater and a Gentile lover. No, I, I love being a Jew. It's phenomenal to be a Jew. As far as that goes, you, you have to have faith, but it's great being a Jew. There's nothing. It's, it's not bad to be a Jew. And he does in verse six say, not as it's not as though the word of God has taken none effect for they are not all Israel who are, which are of Israel so one of the accusations is, you know, did God's promises to us Jews then fail? You know, Paul, if you're saying that the, all the Gentiles are let in now, of course, that's an objection. And Paul does, you know, put it in writing in verse six. And he, and he does give the explanation that, that, like he says in Galatians three, that the people who are Israel, the people who are partakers of the promise Abraham are those who have faith. And there's lots of chapters in, in Romans about this in Galatians, lots of places yep. where that concept is, no doubt about it. But it's not the only concept here in Romans nine. Okay, and then verse seven. Neither, and again, this lines up with the Galatians three that we just read. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. So he is pointing out that the the, the promise was God's promise is where. The counting of God's people will be, not the physical ancestry. And like he says in Galatians 3, that's pointing to the people that have faith, not the people that just point to their lineage and their and their human works. It's 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 by that faith, which is very true. Verse eight, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And verse nine, some translations like mine says, For this is um, this is how. This was how the promise was stated. Or in your verse, it says, for this is the word of the promise, right? Let and it's
0: see here. Let me, um, I don't know why this doesn't match up, but so we're in Romans 9. So on the ESV, it says, for this is what the promise said. Yep. So Paul's
1: pattern. pointing out the wording of the promise. And a lot of times when you hear pastors teach on this verse, they, they teach, the, the fact that there was a promise and that's not in dispute, but Paul's actually pointing out, look at the words of the promise. And what does he say? What does he point out? He could have pointed out quite a few things. In fact, if you go back to the original text, you can see that it's actually clear under the places, just, just a paragraph ahead. But here, Paul says that the promise, this is the word of the promise at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And there's three things going on in this quote. The first one is is clear. At this time, will I come? One of the major objections to Paul's message is, you know, why is this all happening so many hundreds or thousands of years later, Paul? And Paul said, don't you remember the promise that was given to Abraham? Like the promise is that I'm going to come in a year from now. I'm going to come later. Paul doesn't say a year from now. He actually changes it to at this time, will I come? Because he's pointing out that much, much later. And that's his point is that the Messiah really did come and it really was promised by God. That's part one. Part two is that that Sarah shall have a son and not not sons, not seeds, but a son. And as we saw in Galatians three, and as we see elsewhere with Paul, that son is not Isaac. Paul's is using this to show that this, the promise seed is Jesus. So all of our antenna should be up here, that this is an allegory. Yep. And what do we know about Sarah? Was the promise to Sarah or was the promise to Abraham?
0: It was to Abraham.
1: I mean, they were both there, right? And and why does Paul use the quote that the promises that, that Sarah is included in this line? Well, we could just skip right over it and say, Well, God made a promise and he chose one, not the other, and move on. But Paul didn't do that. Paul pulls out the one that has Sarah in it because what do we know of Sarah in the story? Sarah laughed at God.
0: Yep. Yep.
1: Who's laughing at Paul's message? The the Jews, uh,
0: the rejecting those who are rejecting Christ. Yep.
1: They actually laughed at his message. They try to laugh him out of the temple courts. They try to mock him and laugh at him. It, you know, I remember when I first um you have probably heard some pastors um maybe don't not do the best job teaching the Adam and Eve story. And they kind of point out that Eve was the one who took the apple and, you know, Eve kind of started down the path. It, its I don't think it's a great teaching. I think Adam, if you look at it, Adam was there the whole time and could have said no, but he didn't. So I don't think we should single out Eve as the villain in the Adam and Eve story or, or a worse participant than, than Adam is. And, and nor should we pull out Sarah as a worst participant, you know, in this, in the Abraham Sarah story, because I don't think she was, but yeah. it is true that it is kind of easy to, to mock Sarah for actually laughing at God. And you could see how, you know, in our circles, you know, the rabbis are all men and they, they probably have more of an affinity to Abraham than they do to Sarah. So here when Paul basically lines them up, the his non-believing Jewish audience with Sarah, he's calling them the housewives that laughed at God's promise. And that is another really sharp rebuke. It's, a, it's one of those really subtle ones that if you know yeah. the identities, you'll get it. But if you don't know the identities, you just pass right over it.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The first part of verse 10
1: is really important because if Paul was talking about the idea that the word of God hadn't failed, because I think he actually transitions away from it in verse nine anyways. But if, if Paul was talking about the fact that that God's word did not fail, that's a, that's a fair theme, but it's not the theme for the whole chapter. And the beginning part of verse 10, Paul actually gives us that signpost. He says, and not only this, not, not only did the the promises of God not fail and what's, what's the end result of his transition going to be. It's the end of verse 12, actually. So not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one, even by our father, Isaac, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. So if Paul just changed the roles in the promise story to Abraham, and he, he's calling the Jews Sarah, and he's calling the son Jesus. Yeah. What, what are the roles here? We saw in Galatians 3, nobody ever asks who is the elder and who is the younger. People that, that teach on this only just move right on that, that, you know, the elder shall serve the younger, just like God made the promise. He chose one, he didn't choose the other. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that the elder shall serve the younger. And in Paul's day, it was really clear that the elder were the Jews. They were in God's family to begin with. They were the ones directly chosen. Now that the Gentiles are coming in and being led into the faith, this is a surprise. They're the younger ones. And yet the Jews were the ones acting like Esau, the ones who despised the birthright. They despised the Messiah. They despised God's gift of, of them being chosen for the inheritance. And by so doing the inheritance has now maybe temporarily passed directly to the Gentiles, as Paul talks about in chapters 10 and 11. So this, his main point here is that the elder shall serve the younger, the Jews, you know, the promise was the Jews are supposed to serve the Gentiles. How do you, how do you Jews like that?
0: It's rough. Yeah. yeah. supposed to be, yeah, they want the other way around.
1: Now we're going to get into some deeper objections that, that, line up again, these are touchstones that the Jews have used their whole, the whole time they teach that Paul would know very well that have have kept them in a very bad theology for a long time, because Paul's teaching them, like he said, in Galatians 4, that the 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 children who are the children of the promise now represent are represented by Isaac and the children who are the children of slavery, you know, the the children of of the ancestry are the ones represented by Ishmael. And that's a big reversal. Well, for, you know, Paul's life and for the centuries leading up to when Christ came, the Jews had taught that God loved the Israelites and didn't love everybody else. And some of the things that they pointed out about this in more recent times since Malachi was like this verse that Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And that you could imagine that being bandied about whenever someone would object. What do you mean the Jews are God's chosen people? Doesn't God love everybody? And he said, no, no, no. God says, I love Jacob, but Esau have I hated. Yeah. Well, if Paul just reversed the roles in verse 12, then Mm -hmm. in verse 13, Paul's taking their slogan their hate, their slogan that they used in a hateful way, because it's, it's actually taken out of context even. But right, even right. so, they use this slogan in a hateful way to say, no, no, God really does only love Jacob. He hates all you non-Jews. And yeah. Paul's flipping it around and saying, well, if you're the ones who say this, that, you know, Jacob God loved and Esau God hated, aren't you the Esau ones? Would you like this statement that much if it was if it was reversed on you?
0: Yeah, no.
1: Wait, okay, verse 14 is the verse that uh, a Calvinist teacher
0: uses a ton. So, yeah, I just want, I don't know if you're also going to point this out, but just so people know this, um, and I think Joel Carson made a big deal out of this. This Malachi, this Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, comes from Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother when the Lord saith, yet have I loved Jacob and I hated Esau? Uh, 2 and 3. So this does not come f- where he's, he's kind of in Genesis and the rest of this earlier, but when he quotes this, he's actually yeah. quoting from the last book in the Old Testament. He's not quoting from Genesis there. Yeah. So this is, this is long after Esau has become Edom, an entire nation, and it's a reference in the context of Malachi to nations, not people, not babies who are still in the womb but nations who have grown up well afterward. You know, I think,
1: you know, when you look at Calvinism and you look at Arminianism, you know, they're both, they're both actually from the same cloth because they both teach that God chose some and didn't choose others. And then they, they argue, you know, what that means. Arminians, Mm -hmm. I think, look at the whole of scripture. They look at Romans 10 and 11 and everything else and say, well, we know what the meaning of these chapters are. So when we look at Romans 9, can it really go against these other meanings? And the Calvinists look at Romans 9 and say, well, this is, we have to clearly understand this, this text. And if we're getting an understanding out of this text that God chose some and didn't choose others, then we're going to apply that meaning to the rest of Scripture. And those mm-hmm. two, they're like you know trains passing in the night. They, they don't line up, those two schools of thought. This particular verse, um, the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, the way Paul uses it, I think supports... I think, I think both points, both sides have been supported for so long in their thinking, because the Arminians know that the overall context couldn't mean what the Calvinists say it means. And the Calvinists look at the the verses and say, but the way Paul's using these isn't lined up with what the Arminians believe. And I think they're right. I think that even though this Jacob I loved, Esau I hated is actually referring to nations in Malachi. And it's referring to the nations hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau walked the earth, because Esau was totally, totally blessed in his life. Esau was not cursed, but after all their bad behaviors, after hundreds of years, sure enough, you know, the Edomites were had gone really askew and, and, and they were, and they were punished and they were not loved. However you want to say it. And even though that's true from an Arminian standpoint, I think the Calvinists have a point that a lot of these verses Paul's using really look like he's using them to make a very sharp personal argument but mm-hmm. where I think they go wrong is they just have the roles mixed up and Paul's yep. actually being sarcastic or ironic and mm-hmm. if you don't know the underlying you know theology and the underlying Jewish errors you don't catch the irony so you yep. think Paul's just saying it you know I can imagine if we had you um, know uh, if you could fast forward 4 thousand years into the future and you had an archaeologist you know dig up a, a red baseball cap, out of, the, out of the Arizona desert that said, uh, make America great again, right? That catchphrase, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, can mean a lot of different things. It could be something that's inspiring or something that's hateful, but it's, it's not just a plain vanilla message, right? Yeah. It, it can mean, depending on where you're coming from, it has a very significant um, underlying context, underlying tone or message. But someone 4,000 years from now is not going to catch any of that. They could say, oh, look, right. someone made a baseball hat that whatever America was, they wanted it to be great again because they loved it. Oh, what nice people. And then you would move on. But that is not at all what the message meant to the people who authored it or the people who, who hated it at the time that it was, it was said. And that's, I think, the same thing that's going on <laughs> in Roman's time. Yeah.
0: I can just imagine all the people who are going to just uh, isolate out that one little snippet and try to make this a political show. <laughs>
1: that's gonna be funny. <laughs> I, I don't care what side anyone's on. That that yeah. is a uh, that's a lightning rod of a slogan, right? Yep. <laughs> All
0: right. So so did you cover how this is to be? How how does Paul mean this here in verse 13?
1: Yeah, Paul got means the role reversed. Yeah, Paul means this the same way he's gonna mean uh, a few of these other ones coming up, like the potter and the clay and the pharaoh, um, a lot of these other ones are all going to be slogans that the Jews would say, or or teachings that the Jews would use whenever they were defending the idea that God loved only them and did not love the Gentiles, right? This some chosen, some not chosen ideology, which was, was killed for about 400 years after when Christ came, and for the next 400 years or so, and then kind of crept back up again and now, you know, pervades modern theology. It's Paul's using it and he's, and he's showing if I reverse these roles, don't you hate your own teaching? Now, you know, if God really does, how does that feel? Yeah. How's that feel?
0: Is this dose of your own medicine and we're we're going to see that. And that's actually Calvinists would think that the Esau here is a modern-day Gentile who rejects Jesus, but yep. in actuality, Paul is painting the election. They're called Israel is called the election. Israel is called enemies of the gospel and the election in Romans eleven twenty-eight in the same verse. And how could that possibly be? And, and they this. are the Esau here, not yep. Gentiles today who don't receive yep. Christ, but uh, Israel, the election. They are the Esau here.
1: That passage in, in, in chapter eleven is really strong because it really argues against the what what, what some people think is the plain reading of Romans nine. Because how could they both be true? It's, it's a good passage. You're right.
0: Yeah.
1: Paul's argument, when you get down to verses 22 and 23, and I know we'll get there. When when he says, "What if God did all these things?" and like Joel pointed out, um, Joel Carson on your previous show, that you know Paul puts that in there, and nobody ever focuses on it. I would go one step further and say, Paul's expected answer, why you're asking why he's asking what if God did this? He's expecting the reader to know that that's a negative answer that God did not do this. And that's never taught. Everyone always teaches that this is what Paul's saying this is what God does. But the reason why Paul puts the what if there, he's saying, well, God doesn't do this, but what if he did? And what if you were actually the chamber pot? Wouldn't you hate that? So we'll, yeah. we'll, get, we'll get down <laughs> to that. But we have a few to go through to get to that. And it's going to be all the same thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. So after saying that Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, you know, the, the Calvinists would like to say that, that Paul just taught that God chose some and didn't choose others. And right. what's the natural reaction to that? Oh, well, that's not fair. And what does Paul say? Oh, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So therefore our teaching must be correct. Um, the, what did you said the discriminator that we're choosing must be correct um, because that's Paul's natural reaction. And that's, and that's terrible because what Paul actually just did was called them the Esau and he's calling the Gentiles, the, the Jacob. And the Jews really would think that that was unjust because all this time they thought they were the Jacob, right? Right. So in verse 15, it's, it's really interesting to look at the difference between verse 15 and what's the, where's the other one? Um, verse 18. And they're different and they mean different things in the original context. Okay. Verse 15 is when Moses is asking God to show himself to Moses to prove, you know, that that Moses really does have God's favor and he should go off and do what God says to do. And in verse 15, Moses says, uh, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And you always hear this taught that this means um, God loves some and doesn't love others. Like like they will also point out in verse 18, but that is not what happened in verse 15. In verse 15, everybody knows that if you see God, you will die. That's clear in the Old Testament. If you, if you can see God, you would, you would fall dead. You, you, a human cannot lay eyes on God and survive it. And so when Moses asks for God to, to, you know, to show himself so Moses can know that he really does have God's blessing, God says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll pass in front of you. And Moses says, oh, but I'll die. You know? And God says, okay, well, hide behind the rock and I'll let my glory pass in front of you. And Moses is still scared. And that's when God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion. on whom I, have compassion. Meaning I, can let, I can let myself show my glory to you and I could make sure you don't die. I'm strong enough to do that.
0: So you this know? isn't about hardening anybody. If you look over in Exodus 33, 19, um, there it is. Moses yeah. prays and he, and he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So there's no, there's no one being hardened there. It's just to whom the Lord reveals himself, I guess, in this sense, in that particular context.
1: Because Moses knew that if God showed him his glory, he would die. And God said, yeah, but I can actually make it so you don't die. I'm pretty strong. Bear with me a second. Well, how does that come into Romans 9. Well, the way it comes into Romans 9, and this is where Paul has this in mind, is in the verses before, Paul just said that the Gentiles are the ones coming to the faith. What if the Jews' job was to show the faith and get it ready so that the Gentiles could come in later? And the Jews hated that message, the message that the Gentiles are now being led into the faith. It's, it's the great mystery, as Paul refers to it in, yeah, chapter, yeah. in Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3
0: yeah. It's
1: a phenomenal mystery. Well, one of the objections would be, one of the natural objections is why is God letting the Gentiles into the faith, Paul? And what does Paul say? God's strong enough to do this in your own mm-hmm. stories. You have Moses, you know, being told by God, I, he can have mercy on who he has who wants to have mercy on. God can have mercy on the Gentiles.
0: Yeah. So if I want to show myself to the Gentiles, there's nothing you can do to stop me. That's exactly it's, right. It, you know, when you look at what Romans nine through 11 is actually saying, and you point that out to a Calvinist, it's, it's funny how they suddenly think God loses sovereignty to do what he chooses to do. Right. Cause it's not how they paint it when they start off.
1: Yeah. It's just a total misunderstanding of sovereignty. Like, <laughs> God's not strong enough to make people that have free will or can make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul uses this version of this quote here, because he's lining it up with his previous quotes that that God could let the Gentiles in. That's one of the objections you've got to know about coming into Romans 9. And he uses a different one in 18 that we'll get to. And then verse 16, it's not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that shows mercy. Again, it's, this is a commonly taught, in, in our Christian circles, we teach this all the time, that it's not of works. It's 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 God's mercy, God's grace that, that does the trick. It's not no. because our works earn it. And this was a big thing for the Jews, too. But this one we understand pretty clearly.
0: Okay, verse 17. Well, the, uh, the, Calvinists, liked, the Calvinists have a hang-up on the will thing. And they yep. try to project it over onto non-Calvinists. But... They need there to be no will, so they try to remove will out of everything, and so they try to make faith some kind of work that you had to will to do anyway. So yeah, I've heard Calvinists <laughs> weaponizing this against Bible believers on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, non-Calvinists don't have, don't have a fight there. We don't believe right. that yeah. our will is so strong that we can force God to give us salvation because of how good we are. That's, that's, that's a, a strong man.
0: God saves those who believe. And right. that's what he decided. Yep. <laughs> Simple as that. Yep. And that belief is surrender. You know, yeah, d- everyone tries all to the use... saving. Yep. yep. The people try to use the
1: the lifeboat, like a man overboard and the lifeboat analogy. I think yep. the right analogy is God is the judge in the court, and you're the accused standing before him, and, and you've sinned against the judge himself. And the judge says, okay, I'm going to commute your life sentence throw yourself at my feet for mercy. Mm-hmm. And if you decide, Oh no, I'm not going to throw myself at your feet because I think I'm God. Well, <laughs> okay. Or you can decide I-, I have no right to be forgiven for my sins, but if you're going to forgive me, then I'm going to, I'm going to surrender myself and you are the Lord and I'm not. And that's yeah. every picture we get. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> Where did we leave off? Uh, well Pharaoh. Noted. Kevin, this is a big one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really big one. It, this this verse does. So you uh, said
0: Pharaoh in the, in the manuscript you sent. You said Pharaoh is the Darth Vader of the New Testament.
1: If you read this, you can't not know that. You've yeah. got to know that Pharaoh is the Darth Vader of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And you know, he is the absolute enemy. And Paul is reversing these roles, and he gets to verse seventeen. And this comes out of left field to us as Gentiles, but it would not have come out of left field to a Jew in Paul's day. Paul says, for the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. This is a large touchstone that we don't recognize necessarily. Okay. But the same, the same thing that that Moses says to Pharaoh, it's God saying to Pharaoh through Moses is the same thing that God says to Abraham. It's the, it's the word of promise that Paul referenced earlier that I'm going to, through you, Abraham, I'm going to raise up your family and your descendants so that they will be a blessing to all the earth. Okay. This is the reason like the ancient, ancient really difficult question that the jews have is why did god choose the jews and the reason why he chose them that paul points out is so that they would be god's blessing on the earth to show god and show his character so that everybody else on the earth would then come to belief and would be led into the family later god didn't choose the jews for the jews sake or because they were so holy and fantastic they were
0: these shall all nations be blessed
1: yep that's that's the point. That's why God chose him. Why did God choose David? Because he was such a strong warrior because he had a, a slingshot of an arm. He was a Super Bowl winning quarterback. God chose David, the lowliest of all the people in the camp, to show so that when when David beat Goliath, God was the hero, not David. Same yeah. thing with why God chose the Jews. And it's everywhere in the Old Testament. Every single story is God chooses the lowliest, the second born, the, the one who's the, the heel grabber, the weak one. And God makes makes a hero and a story of, of heroism and, and all these great conquerings out of these people. Um, and this is why the Jews go around in the desert, conquering all the other tribes, not because they were great warriors, but they were the worst warriors. But God made it happen so that God was the hero. That's the same thing in, yep. in the in the Abrahams in the promise to Abraham. But God doesn't use, um, Paul doesn't use the promise to Abraham in verse 17. He uses the promise to Pharaoh. Okay. Because in Paul's day, the Jews, the non believing Jews, were acting like Pharaoh. They were keeping the Gentiles out of the faith, just like Pharaoh kept the Jews in his kingdom for punishment. He wouldn't let them
0: go. So, or you could say the same way he was keeping them out of. Israel right or yeah or away I guess they were just trying to leave the sacrifice at first so the same so, way he was keeping them away from that the Jews are trying to keep Gentiles away from the faith so Paul's already called the
1: Jews the disbelieving uh, Israelites on the mountain who made the golden calf he's already called them the mockers uh, uh, that mocked God's promise like Sarah he's already mm-hmm. called them the Esau who, who for, who, for a, a bowl of stew gave up their entire birthright and murdered yep. the Messiah. And now he's calling them Pharaoh, yeah. uh, the Darth Vader of the Bible.
0: <laughs> it's pretty bad. Yep. And it's so it Paul- almost reminds me of the place in Revelation where, uh, where Jerusalem is referred to as Sodom and Egypt. Jerusalem sp- Jerusalem's supposed to be the, the city of peace, it's supposed to be the chosen city. Yep. But it gets called Sodom and Egypt. And the same thing's happening here where they're getting, they are now the, the villain of the story.
1: So in verse 18, when, he, when Paul revisits the concept that he had in verse 15, and he says, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, meaning the Gentiles, yep. and wh- whom exactly. he wills, he hardens because Pharaoh was hardened. And the Jews love to talk about how Pharaoh was hardened so that the mm-hmm. Jews could get out because, oh, God intervened. Look how great us Jews are. He loves us so much. He they hardened Pharaoh so we could get away. Well, yeah. if, you, if you Jews are hardened to my message about the Messiah, Paul says.
0: You're like Pharaoh. It, Maybe you were hardened like Pharaoh. Yeah, exactly. You're the ones yeah. being hardened here. And
1: and Paul's not saying that that's really what God does. But Paul's saying, if, if you believe that God only chose some people, you're the not chosen ones. And it's terrible right. for
0: you. So he's taking their, he's almost like he's taking their misperception of where they stand and turning it back around on them as they believe it. Not right. so much. That it's true. The, Yeah, not not so much what it's true, but like here, here's let me dish your own medicine back out on you. See how you like it. He's he's using
1: all of their uh, slogans and touchstones that they got wrong and they misunderstood and they misapplied to get to the point where they had this terrible, hateful, bigoted prejudicial theology of God only loves us and hates everybody else that that now Paul's turning it all around on them so this is you know point after point that he's re, he's recapping from his arguments his winning arguments against the Jews yeah so if you're a Jew and you hear that Paul says that God you're more like the pharaoh you're going to be really upset and Paul says thou wilt then say to me why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will I like it better in the English version. I have a hard time with the old English,
0: <laughs> but what, it, he's, what, so how do you, how, how does it read in yours?
1: Um, it says one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? I don't think this is a very strong objection because Paul says, one of you will say to me, like he's heard this objection before. He's yeah. just bring, bringing it up to, to make sure he's hitting all the bases. Um, and and people have objected to him. Like, um, uh, like he, like he talks about earlier in Romans where if by becoming aware, if the law made us aware of our sins, does that mean the law, like that means that we should go on sinning all the more to make God's, you know, righteousness that much. I'm probably botching this, but, but should we go on sinning all the more that way we, we distinguish God's holiness that much more. That's a terrible thing to, that's not a, a right conclusion. Right. 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 And that's the same thing here is that, well, if God really did harden us, if he really did have us just be the pathway to the Gentiles, then why are we being cut out if all we were doing was God's will? And that's not what Paul's saying. You know, Paul's not saying all you were, God was going to use you to get to the Gentiles because you were just a bunch of automatons. You know, you were only doing how God programmed you. <laughs> that's not what
0: Paul's point is. Just some, uh, yeah, some fodder to get through in order to get to what I really want to do. And and he and he goes into another one
1: of their their sayings that I think it seems like it seems to me a, another touchstone, uh, another one of their objections, uh, because people, if you can imagine, before Paul became a Christian in his days as a zealous rabbi, right, he was zealous for the faith. People would object. Well, you know, if 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 your religion is true, Paul, and, and God only loves the Jews, you all these Gentiles living in the surrounding hills, they're all just out of luck. They're all just yeah. hated by God. And Paul says, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? And this is maybe what a rabbi would say to a Gentile person, you know, objecting to the, this Jewish teaching. Who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purses and some for common use? This this passage, if you go back to the actual, you know, uh, pottery uh, um Where is it, Kevin? I forget where it is. Jeremiah eighteen. Yeah, if you go back to the story, the 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 potter looks at the clay and realizes it's become marred, and he remakes it. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not that the the um it's 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 kind of a picture of love, anyways. Right? How how he made it. He seemed he made it into another vessel to seem seem good how he wanted to make it. But that's not how the Jews used this quote. They like to talk about how the potter can make the clay, you know, the potter can make it however he wants. So they were misusing this quote in a hateful way, saying yep. that, oh, you know, the, the potter can make, you know, one vessel to honor and another to dishonor if he wants to. And that the Gentiles don't like it, well, too bad to be a chamber pot. You know, we're just glad that we're not like you. And so Paul was saying, yeah, you're the ones who always say God can make you however he wants. So don't you just like that? So it'd now be kind of like
0: if we use one of their own, like a Calvinist argument back against them. You know, it's not like I believe that argument, but it's it's almost like a Proverbs twenty six four and five thing where you answer somebody according to their folly to show the foolishness of their premise, of their false yep. premise.
1: Yeah, it's it's you when you hear Calvinist you know, teacher teach about that some are chosen and some are not chosen. You first want to raise your hand. a How how do you know that you know you're one of the chosen? Because yep. you know what? Yep. What if you're not? And this is what you're teaching. Doesn't that make the whole teaching false? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's funny whenever they start going down that route, um, yeah. start talking about reprobate and elect and all that kind of stuff. I, just as a, an exercise, as a verbal exercise with them, I will say something ridiculous like all Calvinists are reprobates. And they have no authority on which they can <laughs> you know, negate that statement yeah. because everything that they are saying comes from an ideology, not from scripture. They don't even know that Christ died for them since yeah. since christ didn't die for all so if you want to call people reprobates and hardened well let's just that's okay fine i'll take your word for it and it's the calvinists who are the reprobates and who are the hardened have a nice day and they can
1: say well you'll know based on the uh, the fruits of your of your of your hands you'll know by the fruits of your labor you will know by your fruits those that are, are the chosen but then you get to the passage where they they said but you know lord didn't we uh um, cast out demons in your name. And didn't we do miracles in your name? And Jesus says, get away, get away from me. I never knew you, you evildoers. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, there's just not a lot of uh, uh, safety in that, in that teaching, I don't think.
0: So, so Paul isn't necessarily saying this to just any reader. He's not making this point. He's throwing an argument that they use back in their face.
1: All of these arguments are only against the non-believing Jews, and we've got to understand their theological and, errors. They're based on them.
0: objections that they had, he has heard them voice against him. And, and we
1: can know those objections really easily by just reasoning through where they're coming from or talking to people today who have similar you know ideas and theologies that, that the people did in Paul's day. They're not hard to, to miss. If you study the Old Testament, You know, all you knew was the Old Testament, you, you so, wouldn't miss these at all if you start off reading the new Testament and you've never read the old Testament, it's very easy to miss them.
0: Let me ask you a question that you may not have a ready answer, answer for it. It may seem off topic. Have you ever read much of uh, Peter Ruckman? No. Are you familiar with him at all? No. Nope. Okay. So, um, he is kind of a divergent thinker and considered a controversial person. And so he's encountering, he's dead now. He died in 2016, April, but, um, he, uh, was constantly encountering opposition because his thinking was divergent. And so as you read his commentaries, and as you listen to his audio, he's constantly addressing people who are negating what he's saying. And he'll list the commentaries. He'll say, you know, Dad, me, and Hobbes will say this, and then uh, Jameson Brown and Fawcett will say this, and and then uh, over there at Tennessee Temple, they'll say they'll teach this, and Stuart Custer and Lee will say this. He'll he'll list off all these people real fast, and he'll he. It's almost like as he's talking, he can prehend what objections people will have. Like yep. I, I started doing it here, like I started keeping this prop nearby because as I talk on this channel. I get comments from people who are like, you need to read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. That will straighten you out. And I have to tell them in advance, I am familiar with all your little silly arguments. I know what they are. I can use them back against you. So I think it sounds to me like Paul is doing a similar version of that, where he is familiar with all the arguments and he's given it right back to them because he knows what they all are. He's been doing this for years now. By the time he's writing Romans, we're probably somewhere around uh, Acts 22-21 right around there before he starts going to Rome and uh, he's been through the ring he's been through all the Jewish synagogues in, in Asia Minor he stops at the Jewish synagogues first and then he encounters all kinds of opposition against them and then he gets stoned by them so he's had some opposition and so he can actually build their opposition he's so familiar with it and he came from being one of them right that's the point build all that into what he's saying
1: all of Acts and all of his letters we get in post-conversion, knowing how he argued for the faith, but we don't even get the picture of the years maybe uh, yeah. before the conversion where he zealously sought out the Christians and, and to, for punishment and, and argued against the faith. Yeah, he knows and the arguments. He knows them. Yeah, it's it's... And and we just, you know, we pick up the New Testament, we start reading from Romans 1 or Ephesians 1, we just it's brand new to us, but not to him. There, there's there's so many years and centuries of, of all of this pretext and context that we've got to know if we're gonna understand this chapter. A lot of the other chapters, they are meant for people who aren't as familiar, but this particular chapter where he's going after the the the, the Jewish theological errors, we we shouldn't read this and think we understand the meaning if we don't. dive deeply into what those theological errors were and then come at the text to try to figure out what Paul means here. Yeah. Yeah. So verse 22 and 23 are good. And and verse 24 is a little bit separate. that I think we'll, we'll, we'll look at in a second.
0: So let me look real quick. I want to see 22, 23 and 24. So I'm just looking to see if, how the different translations divvy up the punctuation yeah because 22 23 24 all seem to be one question and then and then the esv and the niv and the king james it all seems to do the same thing with it where there's it all one sentence there except for the csb breaks it up after verse 22.
1: well the niv has a dash before yeah. the, the verse 24 starts. What, what version is that?
0: This one now is the NIV.
1: What was the one you had just a
0: minute ago? This uh, is the CSB.
1: And they, it has the dash also. Uh-huh. I think verse 24 is a little bit separate of a concept and it kind of ties into um, those universal texts that I talk about in, in, in chapter 10 and 11. So let's talk about 22 to 23 uh first and then we'll we'll deal with 24. Okay so 22 what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and and then in other uh translations verse 23 starts and what if um actually I read mine what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in in advance for glory.
0: Yep
1: so the plain reading that we hear the Calvinist Arminians teach is that, that God did choose some people that are um, his um, vessels of mercy. And some people are vessels of wrath that God did do that. And, and, you know, and the people teach that, you know, Paul's putting forth the idea. What if God did that? Wouldn't that be great? Or, you know, isn't this a new concept to you? Yeah. I think based on everything we've read so far, and even based on the actual language of these quotes, that that's not the right reading. That right. Paul is saying, what if God did this? And what if it wasn't you? Yep. Wouldn't that yep. be terrible? Because it's a good thing God didn't do this. He, he's saying, what if God, willing to make his power, willing to show his wrath, and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And like we did with every other verse above this, we have to ask, who is that supposed to be? It's not just some random group. It's not just some random individuals or random nation. Paul is saying that this is you, Jews, you non believing Jews, just like he said before. So, what if God did this so that he could show glory on the Gentiles? Like, what if that was the whole plan? Wouldn't you hate that? You know, because that's the opposite of what you thought you were yeah. in this whole story. Yeah. And, and the reason why he starts it off with the what if, like, you know, Joel Carson alluded to, or was wondering is because it, it is important to Paul to say that. And, and, and other translations have it in 20, in the beginning of 23 also, because it's a, it's a, it's a hypothetical question that has a, an expected negative answer. Right. Right. In verse 24, he says, even us in and, and this, so this is important, right? Because in, um, Ephesians, and in so many places, Paul puts himself into the audience of the Gentiles. He it'd be like if you know we're uh, we're both you know citizens of the United States, and yeah, if yeah. you or I went to Africa to be a pastor the rest of our lives, yeah, you can't stand in the pulpit and say, "Oh, you Africans, you live this life." Are you Africans, you would have to say, "We." Because no, no message comes across well, when you're saying you, 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 you the whole time, you know, if it doesn't apply a missionary
0: one time who went to Mexico, and he said, I'm not going to be a missionary to Mexico as an American, I'm going to become a Mexican. (laughs) That's (laughs) great. I'm going to be among them. So he would say, we. Yeah. He would talk to them, yeah,
1: and that's exactly what Paul said of himself, right? He became this to these people to, to be able to teach to them, and that's exactly the same thing here. He says, Even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And some people take the understanding that that means Paul that God called some people from the Jews and some people from the Gentiles, and I don't think that's right. Um, yeah. we'll look at the universal statements. What Paul's whole point is, is God didn't only call the Jews. He also called the Gentiles. Right. That's what Ephesians 1.11 means. That's what uh, Mm -hmm. Romans 10, 11 through 13, this this is what these explicitly say. It's what Galatians says, you know, that that God's chosen everybody. Everybody is chosen. And the dash before this is to indicate that Paul's kind of transitioning his teaching here to the bottom line is, is that, you know, God did also call
0: the Gentiles, and He right, called the right. Jews. We all we all know that, but He,
1: he also called the
0: Gentiles. Right, everybody's called. It's interesting here. It's it's so baffling to me. Like, the Calvinists got a hold of me pretty early on. I guess when I was in Bible college, getting my degree in theology from the University of Mobile, I got it from Calvinist professors. I was in a church where the church where the pastor was Calvinist and it kind of snuck up on me and i spent about a year as a calvinist myself and so when i was delving into romans 9 there was this there was this calvinism that i felt like i couldn't unsee mm. and the longer i've been out of it the more intuitive the correct reading is to me and 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 now i mean it's obvious jews and gentiles is who he's talking about here it's so baffling to me that anybody can see this other than how it's obviously written it's not mm. written about gentiles and gentiles who are elect and non-elect Today in 2022, it's written about Jews and Gentiles, obviously, especially if you keep going in the chapter, especially if you look at the start of the chapter, especially yep. if you look at chapter 11. I mean, you couldn't mistake it if you stayed up all night with a mistaken machine. You
1: couldn't. Yeah, it's so clear.
0: But should I we did. look at, we look at some of those with a mistaken machine?
1: <laughs> should we look at some of those universal statements that he says? Yeah, yeah. In, so verse 30 is one of his uh, recapping verses in chapter nine. What then shall we say? So this is a, what, what is the message of all this? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. A righteousness is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it.
0: That's such a clear statement. That's so obviously what Romans nine is about. So obviously and, what it's about. And it's
1: not some people or some chosen or some individuals or some nations. It's all the Gentiles and all the Jews. Mm-hmm. chapter 10, if, we'll, if you don't mind. If and the could,
0: barrier of entry is faith, not, yep. not some kind of mystical lottery. Yep,
1: yep. So, God didn't just choose some and, and give faith to just some. Yep.
0: So, all right, where are we in 10 now? Uh, verse 11. Okay. Yep.
1: As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. it's like John 3, 16, right? For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a thesis statement for Paul. Yeah. This is the, the, the bottom line argument got Paul stoned from town to town, right? That's so interesting. Is he
0: went from, he's he, in chapter eight, he talks about those who are called chapter nine, those who are called of the Jews and the Greeks. And now he kinds of turns it around and says, same Lord is rich unto all that call upon
1: him. That's very interesting. Well, chapter eight, just like Ephesians one, right. Is all of the blessings that Paul, yeah. Uh, illuminates are all the blessings that all the Jews thought belonged only to them. But in, in Rome, in, in Romans eight and in Ephesians one, Paul's speaking specifically to Gentiles, mm-hmm. almost, you, you know, almost entirely to Gentiles. And he's giving them, in fact, this is the reason why Paul transitions from eight to nine. This is exactly the reason why he transitions from eight to nine in, in, in all his teaching through Romans. He's, he's teaching lots of different subjects. When he gets to eight, He's, he talks about how no one can snatch us away from, from God's hand, because even though we're just we're just barely in his family, like the Gentiles have just barely come into God's family, you're not going to just be thrown out again. God can hold you there. He, he can hold your eternal security if you just surrender. It's, it's fascinating. It's amazing. But all those blessings we get in, in Romans 8 are all the same blessings the Jews thought that they alone had. And they hated the idea that, wait a minute, all these blessings go to the Gentiles now? And that's exactly why Paul remembers, yeah, let me tell you about all my arguments with the, with the non-believing Jews. And that's why he transitions directly into that. In Ephesians 1, it's the exact same thing. Paul gives you all the blessings that yeah. are now shown to have been delivered to the Gentiles through Christ. And they were before, they were always known to have been given to the Jews. These are the Jewish blessings. Everybody, this is the touchstone. Everybody who reads this in Paul's day would know that this is everything that goes to the Jews. Why are you saying this goes to the Gentiles? Go to verse 11.
0: Go to Ephesians Ephesians. 1.
1: Okay. Yep. So this is great that you have this translation up because this is one of the few ones that has the word also in it. A lot of the translations take it out, but it's there in the Greek. It says "In, in whom also, so in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined also to who what does the also mean is it also that we we have also obtained inheritance that's not what the grammar actually here reads it's the grammar that we also have obtained an inheritance just like in romans nine twenty four. it said not only from the jews but also from the gentiles this also is here because paul knows his audience would know that these are all the blessings that the jews get and we gentiles get them also mm-hmm. that, that exactly yeah and so
0: i've and heard we, i've heard the uh The argument that the first part of Ephesians one is a reference to the Jews, and I don't know, I'm not necessarily against it, but I haven't, I have, it hasn't been synthesized to my satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're in
1: Paul's world, right, the 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 Jews, like he says in the beginning of Romans nine, they have all the patriarchs, all the blessings, all the covenants, all these great things, and all the blessings that Paul said in in Romans eight. Reminded them of exactly all those things that it really is Paul's world. And that's really, you know, the Paul's what the the Jews believed and still believe that that's what the being God's holy people really means is all these blessings, all this favor. Right. So it's not that the the blessings in Ephesians one are are explicitly the the same blessings that you would hear in the synagogue in Paul's day. That's not the case. But the specialness of all these blessings, the predestined, um, you know, before the foundation of the world, all of these things are are Jewish centric to begin with, until he gets to the adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. The um, I think it was Joel Carson that said that the um, I just it's, it's top of mind because I just listened to it right. Um, the the <laughs> I think it was him that said that the adoption in um, of sons in verse in Romans nine four is more of. The the acceptance as sons, like natural sons, whereas the adoption of sons in Ephesians one is that if the Jews were the natural born sons through their ancestry through their lineage, you Gentiles have been adopted into the into the family. So Paul's saying everybody's an heir now, right? And so these these promises are 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 very they harken back to the same kind of promises the Jews would get. But in verse eleven, Paul says through Christ we Gentiles were also chosen. The Jews were chosen, but we Gentiles were also chosen. And that's why when he goes into Ephesians two and Ephesians three, his message is so clearly everyone's chosen. Um, so what's, what's yeah. the, uh, what's the one that I have on my list? Is it chapter three? Um,
0: is it verse 10? No. Verse well, six uh, chapter Ephesians three, three six okay let me let me let me type it in up here so we don't give people seizures <laughs> all right is that three six um, I think it is on the right hand side yeah, mine's
1: very different
0: hmm. so yours. Where's my NIV? Uh, go to Ephesians three, six. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel and numbers Me- of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus.
1: Yep. It's not some Gentiles and some Jews. It's that the Gentiles and Israel are heirs together, members together of one body. There's not two bodies. There's not a million bodies. There's one body. We're all sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So the Jews were originally heirs. They were were selected by God directly. Now the Gentiles have been accepted into the family. They're now also heirs because we all have the promise of Christ Jesus.
0: It's interesting to me how the, I mean, the word Israel seems like, I wonder if that's added into the manuscripts on which the NIV is based. That's interesting that that, because that's not just like a pronoun. It's not just an opinion difference. That's a, that's a pretty serious word right. to just have yep. in one verse and not another one.
1: Go back to um, go back to chapter two, starting in verse 11, even if the word Israel is added, which I don't know if it is, I'm not an, I'm not a manuscript ex- expert, Starting in, in chapter two, verse 11, it's
0: fleshed out much more thoroughly, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a great passage here. Wherefore,
1: remember that ye being in time past Gentiles, I'm reading from the right-hand side, right? Yes. Um, in time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. So you were the Gentiles were separated from Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, That's all all the stuff we're hearing about in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, because of Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes far off are made close, made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. You scroll down a little bit for us? yeah. He is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. One more verse, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. So the whole idea with Paul is that there used to be this idea that God chose the Jews and didn't choose the Gentiles, they were enemies, they were far off, they were split, one were heirs, the other one were just outsiders, and that's all gone now, everybody's
0: together. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, we always like to point out Ephesians 2.12 flies in the face of a Calvinistic rendering of Ephesians 1.4. Yeah. Because when a person is born before they're in Christ, they are definitely not in Christ. So they cannot have been in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Yeah. So that phrase in Christ gives uh, the Calvinistic rendering of uh, Ephesians 1.4 some, some big problems.
1: I think Ephesians 2 and 3, to wrap it up, Ephesians 2 and 3 and Romans 10 and 11 are so clearly about everybody being contained together in one body. Everybody's chosen. Everybody's loved by God. That the the doctrine of election that teaches that God only chose some people and didn't choose others. And then you can argue about the reasons that is supposedly taught in Romans 9 and Ephesians 1, really Romans 9, is is really baseless. That there is yeah. not a teaching that God chose some and didn't choose others. It's a, it's a vast misunderstanding of the text. It's not about nations or individuals. God really chose everybody.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So that's, so that's your summary right there, huh? That's it. I thought there's going to be more pomp and circumstance leading up to that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I forgot to read our little, our little, uh, <laughs> Disclaimer? little disclaimers before we got started but yeah that's, i could have uh, reminded you yeah you could have or i could have just done it but you know because we have calvinists watching all the time it, it might bear in mind to to remind everybody beyond the fundamentals does not promote or agree with arminianism plagianism universalism synergism Monarchism, or any other ideological label to which calvinists attempt to map their theological opponents we also do not hold the free will as an axiomatic premise, nor do we worship ourselves or think that we save ourselves And we completely support per, uh, biblical predestination and biblical election while rejecting Augustinian and Gnostic perversions of these concepts. So sometimes you just got to say this because we're always having new uh, Calvinists join us who don't know, who aren't curious at all about what our perspective is. And they just assume that we're Pelagians or Arminians or something like that. Yep. So this has been exciting. So Romans 9 is very clearly somebody objecting to what Paul is saying. It is Jews who are upset that God is just willy nilly letting Gentiles come in without requiring them to be any kind of Jew or be a proselyte to Judaism. Or, like the way it's worded in Acts 15, they don't have to be circumcised and keep the law. They can just straight up have faith in Christ, no deeds of the law, and bam. They're I'll do justified it better. by Christ. I'll say that Romans
1: nine is Paul who had lived in an ideology that thought that God chose some people and didn't choose other people. Yeah. And he's flipping that around to show how ridiculous that theology was and destroying it. And we'll unfortunately the Jews. that, and right, but unfortunately that theology has totally resurfaced. So the very passages where Paul is destroying that some chosen, some not chosen theology are the, is the passage that, Now people use to try to prove that paul's teaching God chose some people and didn't choose others.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's amazing. Pretty ridiculous. So I'm looking at that Rosetta
1: Stone is in Galatians four. So let me ask you: now that we've gone through it all, has anyone ever? Because I because you never see anybody go back to Galatians four and look at that as a way to see Romans nine. Have you now? What do you think of Galatians four in relationship to what we just looked at in Romans nine?
0: What did we say that it was again? Cause I remember saying them and my attention span is um, so, okay. So Galatians four is the role reversal and Galatians three is the supposed to be a blessing to everybody. Yeah. Um, so separately, I'm very familiar with those concepts, but the concept of using them as a Rosetta stone for Romans nine seems like a brilliant insight it's it's uh, it's so simple it's profound or vice versa but it's it's right there in the text and when you bring that over you see paul's thinking and when you use it for romans 9 to me it is it is very enlightening
1: it, it seems when i go through it it seems like it unlocks every like you know i, I think a way to understand what the way a, a way to know that you really understand what an author's intent is what mm-hmm. he means in a passage is if if you could put yourself into his place and you could write the exact same passage he's writing for the yes. same reasons and i think when we hear teachers teach romans 9 we hear so much uh, a, a, like a hopscotch are trying to jump from lily pad to lily pad to get from idea to idea to kind of explain well this is how we think we understand this passage but if you use Galatians four as as the as the um, roadmap on on how Paul thinks, and you apply that to Romans nine, now all of a sudden it unlocks this um, yes step by step argument that does make sense and isn't at all you know a, a teaching that God elects nations or elects individuals.
0: So we do this practice sometimes on Beyond the Fundamentals on Wednesday nights. I don't think we've done it live yet, but. Sometimes in our non-live sessions, we do this thing called presencing, where we go through a certain exercise as a group, and the goal of that group is to presence the mind of the author of the text, mm. like and, and kind of make it feel like the person is there with us to explain himself. Mm. And without going through those motions exactly, I feel like you have done that with the way you've looked at Romans 9 you have done presencing of the author to get us into his mind to see what he's saying and thinking and uh, I think it's been fantastic I think it's fantastic perspective and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that with us
1: we need to ask if anybody in the audience knows how to publish a book
0: oh yeah so if anybody out in the audience Bob has a manuscript of this perspective of Romans 9 and, uh, would like to publish it. If y'all, anybody has any pointers on a good way to get something published, pipe up, shoot me an email, put it in the comments, something like that. But let us know, uh, if you'd like to see this and we'll, we'll get y'all in touch for sure. That'd be great. You got any, uh, last words you want to leave us with Bob? So or just yeah, spend good- them all.
1: Good, good question. I think I've spent a lot of words. What else did we? What else did we have in that uh, original key uh, point? We talked um, about Galatians. We talked about the universal inclusion statements. We talked about theological errors, and we talked about objections. Not Kevin. I think we we covered it all, sir.
0: Yeah, I think we did. I think we did. It's been uh, it's been very enlightening. I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, I'll get feedback from people, and I'd like to have you come on again. That'd be I'm sure. That'd be a lot of fun. And sure. we're getting we're getting positive feedback. Uh we got one guy saying that you're you're a buddy, which is another way of saying that he thinks your your thinking is spot on. Awesome. <laughs> and uh and mature. All right. So thanks a lot, Bob. Thanks for coming on and uh yeah. definitely looking forward to interacting with you in the future and hopefully having you back on whenever we get a chance.
1: Kind of fun. Love the channel. Thanks so much for having me.